following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Whether they're in print or on the internet or on television, often they try to have these attention-grabbing titles, don't they? Um, Things that will cause you to want to look and uh, read the article or listen to what is said. English teachers across the land, as they teach how to write essays, particularly creative writing, they'll encourage students to think of ways in their introduction to be effective and interesting the reader. Or movies, speeches, essays, even TV ads. Uh, They're most effective when they're able to draw the audience in from the beginning, right? Well, a good book is the same way. They often contain introduction or a beginning that piques the interest and causes one to want to read further. And such is the case for the greatest work of literature in history, the Word of God. And in fact, especially so in the Minor Prophets. You know, I hadn't really noticed this before or thought about it, but this week I went back and I read the introduction, the first few verses of every one of the Minor Prophets. And I found it very interesting. You know, these are emotionally charged books. They're addressing pretty pertinent and personal issues in the lives of the people. And almost every one of them opens with an abrupt or emotional or attention-grabbing introduction. You know, all of them typically will will have the the author and give a brief introduction of who's writing and sometimes the, the time period in which they are prophesying. But then every one of them immediately begins with this introduction that draws us in. In fact, let me read a few of them to you. Zephaniah begins with the abrupt, this abrupt declaration. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now that will grab your attention. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth. Nahum's beginning is rather ominous, but attention-getting nonetheless, as he begins his prophecy with, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. You start with that, and you go, whoa, whoa. This is not going to be a cheery message. Malachi begins with an emotionally charged dialogue between God and his people. It begins this way, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Or Habakkuk, he also begins in an emotional uh, way as the prophet himself cries out, How long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Amos charges out of the gate with these words, The Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters his voice and the shepherd's pastures mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. And then there's Joel, who begins his prophecy with a reference to a catastrophic event as he says, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Now, all of these introductions do serve to get our attention. All of them grab our interest in different ways. But perhaps no beginning is more effective or attention-getting as in Hosea. For in Hosea, after 
giving who the author is and the time in which he prophesied, we come to these shocking words. The Lord said to Hosea, for, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the man of the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. I mean, you talk about a startling and disconcerting beginning to a book. That is it. I mean, this seems a little bit over the top, doesn't it? God had asked many of his prophets to do at times very strange or odd or peculiar things. There was the time that Isaiah wandered the streets of town in nothing but his skivvies. There was a, that's underwear for you folk. Jeremiah, he was told to make a yoke like what was put on oxen and to wear it around town. Ezekiel had to eat a scroll, literal scroll, before he was called to prophesy. Or Ezekiel also, God told him to eat bread that had been baked using human dung. Ezekiel balked at that. said, God, I can't do that. So God says, okay, you can use cow manure. Kind of odd, peculiar. God had a point in that illustration that he was trying to communicate. But these are but a small sampling of the strange actions and things that God had called his prophets to do. But when God tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman one who was likely a prostitute, this indeed is an outrageous beginning. The reader can't help but wonder, did God really mean that? Seems like he does. And what what did Hosea do? How did the marriage turn out? What happened in it? And then there's the most compelling question of all, why? Why would God command Hosea to do that? This morning, we're going to look again at Hosea's story and try to answer these questions, especially that question of why. For answering that question, we will gain a deeper understanding of God and of us. So if you haven't turned there yet, please turn to Hosea chapter 1. We started our journey with this prophet about a month ago, and then came Christmas, and then we had the one service Sunday, and then last week a special message, New Year's message, and focusing on the Word of God so it's been a little while, and we've barely really gotten started with this prophet. And if you recall in that first message, we focused on the difficulties in Hosea's life and how he served as an example to us in enduring those things. And this morning, we're going to consider the purpose of Hosea's strange and difficult calling and how God uses his life as an illustration of something much bigger. That'll be our first point, Hosea's life as an illustration. And secondly, we'll look at and consider this question of why. Why did God choose this particular illustration? And then lastly, what is its relevance to us, to the church? So let's look first at Hosea's life as an illustration. We'll begin back again in Hosea 1.1. As I said before, we covered these first nine verses the first time we looked in Hosea, so we're just going to read them and comment on them briefly by way of reminder. If you recall, Hosea was a man who was from Israel, and God had commissioned him to prophesy to Israel. We read in verse 1 of chapter 1 where he says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Well, here, let me pull up our famous slide. I had trouble with this first hour. Ah, shut up this time. I show this uh, from time to time just to give you a little bit of a visual understanding that what I've highlighted in yellow there again describes the time period in which Hosea ministered. He, he mentions here in chapter 1 verse 1 that, that he was ministering. He prophesied during the reigns from Uzziah to Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. 
and also from, he prophesied the beginning of his ministry began during the time of Jeroboam, king of Israel. This gives us a point of reference. We can go back to Kings, we can go back to Chronicles, and even the book of Amos. And it gives us an understanding of what was going on during the time period in which Hosea prophesied. If you remember from our study of Amos, we learned that the the situation was good in one sense, but not in another. Remember during the reign of Jeroboam, when Hosea's ministry began, times were good, right? They were prosperous, there was security. But from a moral and spiritual standpoint, all was not well. And Amos, again, he focused on the fact that the people's sinful treatment of others. They were exploiting the needy, taking advantage of the poor, and denying justice to the weak. And then in 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 17 or uh, after that, it tells us that after Jeroboam's stable 40-year reign, everything unraveled in the monarchy. The next three decades saw six different kings. Four of them were assassinated. And while the turmoil was going on in the throne, at the same time, Assyria was growing in power to the east. In fact, just five short years after Jeroboam died, Assyria began advancing west towards Israel and reached their very borders. And King Menahem ended up paying off the Assyrians so they wouldn't invade the land. But it wasn't long after that that Assyria invaded anyway. And they took away several Israelites into captivity from the northern part of the land. And as bad as times were in Israel over the course of Hosea's life, if you think about all the situations happening with uh, the attacks from invaders, with the uh, situation going on in leadership, with the impact that that would have on the economy. Hosea really doesn't talk about any of those things. His prophecies give attention to something that far worse that is taking place in Israel. For even though their political circumstances were dire, though their security had been severely breached, their livelihood threatened, though their economy was probably hemorrhaging from all of the unrest, these things were not the worst of it. Because their moral and spiritual condition were in even greater peril. And so, God raises up Hosea to go and talk to the people. And God chose Hosea to bring his message, God's message, to the people in the most peculiar of ways. By using Hosea's own personal life as a living illustration of that message. And the details of that illustration begin to unfold in Hosea 1, verse 2. Let's read from there, chapter 1, verse 2. Where it says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel." On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by, their Lord, by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned, Lo Ruhamash, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. Here we're given a brief family bio, which happens early in the years of Hosea's ministry. In fact, Hosea's call to the ministry was a call to marriage. God tells him to marry a woman of Zenunim, 
that is a, a sexually promiscuous woman, likely a prostitute. And to that, God adds, tells Hosea to take children born out of that immoral lifestyle. Some scholars believe that that is referring to the fact that Gomer actually had children when they got married and that Hosea was to take them in. Now, if you think about this a minute, if you were Hosea, how would this command hit you? You're serving the Lord, walking with God, um, and then God says, I want you to go and marry this immoral person and have children with them. You know, he, he must have been at least a little bit troubled and perplexed, wouldn't he have been? But he did it. He obeyed the Lord. He did as God had told him. He went and married this woman named Gomer. And the marriage was only the beginning. We learned further that Gomer bore children. There were three kids mentioned here in chapter 1. And notice, too, that they were given not the names that you would typically name someone. Each one was to be named in such a way that would reflect God's disposition towards Israel and his message of judgment. Israel's firstborn son was to be named Jezreel. That was a place of infamy in Israel's history. That was where Ahab and Jezebel had a residence. And in that place, they had seen the field of Naboth, seen his vineyard, and they wanted it. So they unjustly murdered him and his sons so that they could acquire that field. Jezreel was also the place where a great bloodbath took place when Jehu wiped out the line of Ahab. And God wanted Hosea's son to carry that name as a reminder, as an indictment to Israel and that God's judgment was coming upon them. Hosea's next two children were named not pitied and not my people because these two children were to reflect God's attitude towards Israel, how that he would show no mercy to them, how we would not treat them as his people when these judgments for their sin had come or were to come. Now think about that for a minute. You know, these kids receive a lot of uh, jokes, you know, when people talk about them. But, but think about the fact, you know, as these children were out growing up, walking about, as people would call their name, every time their name was heard, it would be a reminder of how God felt about Israel, about his disposition towards them, how he would not show mercy, how he would not treat them as his own people. In fact, these children were probably, they were in their early 20s, or in their mid-twenties when the exile took place, when Assyria came and totally wiped out ten northern tribes of Israel. And after reading these verses and after uh, being seeing these names that were given to the children, it, it might be easy for some to think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't God make some promises here? Is He going back on them? And so we read the words from chapter 1, verse 10, which say, Yet the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers of me and to your sisters, Ruhamah. So here God does describe and remind that he has not forsaken his promise. This isn't a permanent disposition towards the people of Israel, but it is how he's going to respond to them in the days of Hosea. In fact, several times we will see in Hosea, God declares his promise to restore them, just as he does here. We'll talk more about that next week and as we go through Hosea together. But after that brief reminder that God is indeed faithful, that he will in the end fulfill his promises, the conversation then abruptly transitions back to Hosea. In Hosea 2.2, Israel's sin is described through the lens of Gomer's infidelity to the prophet Gomer's marriage to Hosea didn't change her promiscuous ways. 
We see in the next section how she treated Hosea really served as a parallel to Israel's treatment of Yahweh. We see a hint of Gomer's adultery in the children, and the birth of the three children is described in chapter 1. The first child, Jezreel, was described as the son Gomer bore to Hosea. But the next two children were simply described as children whom Hosea, uh, Gomer bore. Then in chapter 3, we learn that Gomer left Hosea and sold herself into the arms of another man. And so in Hosea 2, verses 2 to 13, we begin to see the reason God commanded Hosea to marry this woman. And as I was working through it this week, I really tried to figure out how to make a, an outline of this section, these, these uh, verses from 2 to 13. Uh, how, you know, look at the, and track a logical flow of thought walking through the verses. And I realized there, there wasn't any way to do that. They seemed to go back and forth with uh, dealing with what Israel had done and then God's response and how he felt about it. And, and so he, he talked about, Israel, you've done this and this, and then say, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I feel about it. And then back Israel, and then this and this, and then back to God's response. Just back and forth. And I think that's intentional. Because what does that communicate? There's emotion, strong emotion within this passage. I think it really shows the perspective of where God is at because Hosea's experiences are intended to be a picture of Gomer's treatment of him, of him and serves as a backdrop for Israel's treatment of God. So as we begin going through these verses in chapter 2, God begins to weave his story within that of Hosea's. And when we look at these verses, the book as a whole, but particularly these verses, one thing jumps out, and that's the repetition of the words harlot and harlotry and adultery, lovers, nakedness. All throughout this section, the focus is the unfaithful wife, not only in reference to Gomer, but also, and more importantly, to Israel. And before I look at these verses, I want to preface them with a couple of comments. First is that this text is really a PG-13 or worse. Um, There are several direct statements of um, the nature of infidelity. So I'm going to try to be appropriate as I can, but just know that the intent here of the writer of God himself is that this passage is to, intended to be disconcerting. It is intended to stir the emotions. Secondly, ladies, don't be offended or put off by the fact that this passage is focused on a woman. God is not making a statement here that uh, women have a proclivity for adultery or that it's only bad when women do this or that everything is just from a man's point of view. Men are equally guilty of this sin. In fact, doesn't every case of, a, of adultery involve a man too? It is just as sinful, just as heinous, just as destructive, whether it's the husband or the wife who is unfaithful. God declares himself here a husband to Israel. And so the closest parallel and the reason he would have a man uh, marrying an unfaithful woman would be that's the closest parallel to God's relationship to Israel. And again, this text is not intended to be an indictment on women. It is intended to be an indictment on infidelity, whether that is by a man or a woman. And remember, too, when he's speaking to Israel, though it is personified as she, as her, which is often the case for nations in the Bible, think of who makes up that nation. It is both men and women who are being unfaithful to God. And lastly, I, I understand that the subject matter of this book may be particularly painful to some of you here because you have experienced 
what we're talking about with Hosea. For you, the sin of adultery is not uh, an abstract notion. It is not simply words on the page, but has unfortunately been a part of your life, either as the one committing the sin or the one who was sinned against. And I I, I just would plead and encourage with you, uh, rather than let this subject bring up those painful hurts or memories, know this, that your experience will help you understand this book better than anyone else. Know that God will even use the worst of times in your life for a good thing in order to show you Himself through what He has to say in Hosea. So I encourage you to to know that in the end, you're going to know God better through this book. So let's pick it up, chapter 2, verse 2, where God says through Hosea, Contend with your mother! Contend, for she's not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. He begins here repeating the word contend. Normally that was a word that would be used in a formal legal accusation or in a courtroom case. And here, God presents himself as an aggrieved husband and father calling for his children to confront their mother because she's not listening to him anymore. In fact, he says here the marriage is totally broken. He's not declaring that there's been a divorce, but just describing the state of the marriage. The second half of verse 2 He bluntly tells his wife to stop presenting yourself with provocative makeup and adornments and wearing those low-cut tops, strutting your stuff, if you will. We see here that she is flirtatious and brazen in her desire to get attention from other men. And I think as an aside, this verse is yet another reminder of the importance of maintaining modesty in our life and how we dress and our appearance and not seeking the attention of others with our bodies. In fact, here, God describes that. That's the behavior of a harlot. Verse 3 goes on to say that if she didn't listen, she would be stripped, which was a practice at times in the ancient Near East and some nations for adulterous women. But here I think it's a metaphorical statement where he's talking about the consequence of the shameful consequence that took place. Losing food and clothing would no longer be provided by her husband. And then... After that, God clearly mixes some metaphors here as he describes that cutting off of all her provisions is like when a land is being dried up, when it's parched because of drought. And that's at the same time what he was going to do with the land of Israel. It's something he promised he would do in response to their sin, which was to withhold rain, to withhold crops. Because you see, they they weren't looking to Yahweh for the provision of their crops. They were looking to other gods. And so he says in verse 4, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Here God describes how he feels about the people of Israel. Probably similar to how Hosea must have felt regarding the children that he had who were born from immorality. Verse 5 tells us the motivation of these adulterous Israelites, that they saw their provisions coming from someone other than God, just as Gomer was looking for her needs to be met through other men. And notice here, too, there's an irony. 
The irony is that Israel, and probably Gomer, was acting as a harlot who was chasing her lovers rather than what would be normal for them to come to her. This again reveals just the the wantonness, the, the shamefulness of her actions. She was convinced her lovers would give her what she wanted and needed out of life. And the question arises in all of this, well, who, who are these lovers? What is he talking about here? And what is it that Israel is doing that he is equating here to adultery? We'll go down to verse 13 a minute. We're going to skip to the end of this section. God summarizes it here, and he reveals it explicitly where he says in verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So what was it that was Israel's adultery? What was that being compared to here? Idol worship, right? Going after the Baals. Baal was a Hebrew word. It just had the basic idea of Lord or Master. But it was also a formal name for the Canaanite god of the land. One who had been worshipped and part of religious ceremonies for centuries in that region. He was the one that was considered the provider, the god of, of, um, of weather and fertility. He was looked to as the one who would provide for crops and provide for uh, livestock and provide offspring for livestock and for children. And so he was considered the God that controlled fertility. In fact, uh, the, the way the mythology was described is that Baal would have relations with the goddess Anat, and his seed would actually, they would say, was the rain that came down upon the earth that would give us our crops. So part of Baal worship was to imitate or reenact these relations, literally. And so there would be the practice of many temple prostitutes. And part of the worship services were going to these altars and having relations just like Baal. And that was a way they would see as encouraging Baal to do more so they would have more. You can see why this was a popular religion. It lasted for a long time. Because not only was it connected to the vital need for crops and for livestock and for children... But also, too, it it sanctioned and encouraged having sex. That was something that wasn't looked down upon, but it was, like I said, encouraged. God used the plural Baals in verse 13, likely because there was also considered every region had a local Baal, a local lord and master, a God who was particularly focused on that region. God says here, their livelihood, they thought, depended upon these Baals. Later in Hosea, God describes also not only were the Baals the lovers, but also too, he looked at, they were looking to Egypt and Assyria and foreign nations for help and provision. When Assyria threatened attack, the people didn't cry out to God and ask him for help. They paid off the Assyrians to keep them from coming in. Or often they would go to Egypt and seek help and assistance when they were threatened. And so in that way, God was saying, rather than turning to me, you're turning to these other nations, treating them as lovers. We'll see that later as we go through Hosea. Going back to Hosea 2.6, God again responds to Israel's infidelity as he says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge her up, hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Here God as the offended husband declares that he will prevent Israel from running off, just as Hosea probably tried to do several times with Gomer. 
God says that he would prevent them from turning to Baal for help. And this may even be an allusion to the fact that later on they're going to go off in exile, be literally removed from their land. So they will not be able to look to Baal to help provide. And there's a tragic irony here. We see it in verse 8. The irony is the people they were looking to, they thought that Baal was the source of their provision, that, that he was the God looked to, or that these foreign powers were actually the things that would protect them. But all along it was really God. Notice as he says in verse 8, She does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, new wine, and the oil. Those three things just kind of sum up the agriculture as a whole. He provided all of these things. And lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take back my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. This verse begins in the Hebrew by repeating the pronoun she. It's an emphasis here. She herself doesn't realize, she doesn't acknowledge that all that she has is coming from me. James Montgomery Boyce has written a number of sermons on the minor prophets. Um, and I was reading one he had written on this section, and he in it presents the, a story, a potential scenario that may have happened within Hosea's own life that parallels what God is talking about here. Boyce describes how one day God may have commanded, told Hosea to get some provisions together, some food and some clothing, and go take them to his wife. She was living with another man by that point. She'd worked through all of her other lovers and had sold herself eventually to this guy. And so Hosea, he continues to describe, obtains his food and, and the groceries, and he sets out to find her. And upon locating the house where she's living, Hosea knocks on the door. When Gomer's consort answers, Hosea asks him, is Gomer staying here? To which he replies, yeah, who's asking? And Hosea says, her husband, can you please give her these things? After handing the man the groceries and the clothing, Hosea departs. And upon Gomer's return, her lover gives her these provisions. He doesn't tell her where they came from. And so as a result, she hugs and kisses him and shows him great gratitude. And, but what's the problem here? Who, who really deserved that gratitude? Her husband, right? Now, we can't know if that scenario actually played out, but that is exactly what God is describing that Israel was doing here. He was giving them all of these things. But the gratitude and the affection that was due him, they were giving to somebody else. And so verse 10 says, and we read, Then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all of her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field will devour them. Again, God describes here, as he has several other times already, how their shameful acts will be exposed. Their hypocritical and false worship. God says here, that's over. That's coming to an end. In fact, verse 11 here echoes back to what Amos told these same people. Back in Amos 5.12, when God said, I, I hate your festivals, I, I hate your religious gatherings. When you come together, it's not me here worshiping. And as you gather together, what is it you're doing all during the week as you're sinning against those around you in terrible ways? In fact, in Amos, God says that he wouldn't accept their worship 
because of what they were doing to others, how they were sinning against others. Here in Hosea, God says, I will not accept your worship because how you were sinning against me. So looking at this description, these verses 2 to 13 of Israel, the adulterous wife, just like Gomer, the question again we're compelled to ask is why? Why did God have Hosea marry this woman who would repeatedly cheat on him I mean, on the surface here, we can see, well, okay, God intended Hosea, his marriage, to be an analogy to Israel and her sin. As we move through chapter 2, we see the picture of of Gomer's infidelity fading into the background as that of, of Israel's comes to the forefront. Gomer's harlotry was indeed an illustration. It was a metaphor for Israel's turning away from God to depend on idols, to depend on other nations. So it's clear Hosea's life was intended to be an illustration, and that's the first point this morning. But that answers the question of why, but only partly. That takes us to our second point this morning, because the, the question of greater significance is why this particular illustration? Why have Hosea suffer through this marriage to an unfaithful wife? Why didn't God just say, you know what? What was the first commandment I gave you people? To not have any other gods before me, yet that's exactly what you're doing. And you're breaking a covenant, a vow you made to me at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 when the people said, we will follow and do all that you say, God. Why didn't God just remind them of that or or tell them of that? Instead, God chose to use an illustration. But why this one? He could have used any other kind of illustration that would describe a betrayal or, or cheating or, or deceit or, or the, the pain of, of some event in life. Why emphasize this one? Why choose infidelity? And as you go through his book, these, these terms, these words, harlot and harlotry and adultery and lovers, are not just in chapter 2. He, he uses these terms over 30 times throughout the book. Why such an emphasis on that? These aren't merely academic questions. For in studying Hosea, the answer to the question of why is something you can't miss or you miss the point of the whole book. I want you to think about this a minute. Again, a lot of times as we read these things, we can get detached from the circumstances or the person who spoke them. But you've got to remember, there was a real guy named Hosea who went through these things. And think about what it was like as he was proclaiming these words to the people, knowing what was going on in his life. Imagine yourself as part of the audience, part of the congregation, and you're hearing him speak these words. How do you think they would have received words from this man? You know what's going on in his home. You know what has happened to him. You know what's been done. You know who who he has married. Imagine you're part of the crowd and, and this same man who is saying to the people that they have been harlots themselves. They were being accused of the same thing he was experiencing. Now, when he's talking, how do you think he would have been received by the audience? Do you think folks would have been listening a little bit harder? Do you think they would have been more attentive How do you think his hearers would receive those words from this man? Do you think there'd be a little more bite to what he was saying? Do you think there'd be a little bit more of an emotional impact? Right, again, is this guy, oh, that's that guy Hosea. Man, how could he endure everything that he's going through? What an awful situation he's in. How could he bear the hurt and the treachery and the infidelity of this woman? And then it hits you as he's speaking, he's talking about me. 
I am the betrayer. I'm the treacherous one. I'm the one who's been unfaithful. And the one I've been unfaithful to is God. As Hosea preaches, nobody could say this guy was speaking from the theoretical. As he articulated God's message to Israel, I wonder. You know, I I wonder if he did it with tears in his eyes. I wonder if as he was doing it, he felt the wounds within his own heart. The words that he was speaking. I wonder if he at times was having that sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. Because what he was describing was his own life. I think God chose the most sensitive and provocative analogy presented by a man who was living it so the people would get it. So that we would get it. You see, the wickedness of their sin, the wickedness of our sin, it's not just disobedience to a holy God, it is also the betrayal of a loving God. The God who had provided for them, the God who had protected them, who had delivered them out of horrible circumstances, the God who promised them His loyalty and committed Himself to them, they had in their sin of idolatry betrayed that God. The message of the book is that we would understand this, how much our sin grieves God. That's where he's aiming, right? It's greater than the grief you would feel if someone cheated at a game. Much greater than the grief you would feel if someone stole from you or if someone was talking about you behind your back. A close friend had betrayed you. It it, it is much worse than any of these things. It is the grief that... You would feel in the one closest to you, the one to whom you've committed and they committed to you to be united for the rest of your days. It is the grief of that most intimate love giving themselves to somebody else. Not just his or her body, but also their heart. And so not only here in Hosea, but all over the Old Testament, all over the prophets, the major and minor prophets, God speaks of their sin as 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 adultery, as harlotry. Do a word study on that word in the Old Testament. And notice how many times it's applied to Israel, applied to people to whom God had made a commitment and who had committed to Him. God summarizes how He feels in verse 13. Again, look there. He says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them. And listen to how He describes this. And adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry. And follow her lovers so that she forgot me. You see the picture he's giving us here? It's the scene where where a spouse, a a wife in this case, is prettying herself up and putting on jewelry and and makeup and perfume and and a nice outfit. and, And she's preparing herself for a special date. But not a date with her husband. And as he's standing there at the door, she walks past him without even acknowledging him, forgetting him completely to go be with that other man. God says here, she forgot me. She's turned her affections, his affections away with cold indifference. It's a pretty poignant scene, isn't it? Hosea 2.12, God says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Hosea 6.4 What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? 
For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. And then these words in Hosea 11.8, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All of my passions are kindled. Again, what makes sin so sinful isn't just disobedience against a holy God, but also the betrayal of a loving God. You know, if if Hosea was uh, a jerk, you know, if he was this abusive, harsh, uh, unloving, um, just a wicked man, you know, Gomer's sin, though it would still be wrong, I think we'd understand it a little more, right? But the fact that Hosea was actually a loving family man, he was a, a godly man committed to the Lord. That's what makes Gomer's betrayal so vicious and so wicked. And that is how we are meant to see our sin against God. Of any book in Scripture, Hosea gives us a window into God's heart. And though we will never grasp anything close to knowing what God really thinks and what He really feels, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? But at the same time here, more than any other book, God seeks to give us a picture so that we'd have at least a, a little bit of an understanding and a, a picture, an illustration, an analogy so that we would know better how sin, our sin, makes God feel. How much it grieves Him like your spouse in someone else's bed. And that's why I titled this sermon, The Shocking Nature of Sin. The shocking sinfulness of man, I mean. Because it is shocking. It's not just shocking in the depths of depravity that people will go. It is shocking in the fact of the ultimate betrayal against the one who made us. The one who says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world. A world which treats him in this way. And that was all of us. It was you and me. And it still is you and me when we sin. Now, there's a word of theological caution here in all of this. We have to be very, very careful. Whenever we start talking about the inner thoughts and emotions of God, we are treading on very dangerous ground. Because, again, God is infinite, and we are not. And there is a danger when studying Hosea of seeing God as this whimsical uh, a God who is subject to emotions and passions. And, in fact, that's what our culture has been pushing him more and more towards, to be more like us. That he behaves and he thinks and he feels just as we do. Now there is a, a connection. Uh, we'll talk more about this uh, next week. This, this whole notion of God and emotions. It falls under the, what's called the doctrine of impassibility. The divine impassibility. So we'll, we'll deal with that more next week. But we have to be careful because some read Hosea and they look at God as this jilted lover who's in a fit of rage and hurt and vengeful and bitter and, and just following into these mood swings. He begins to look like, if we're not careful, a, a swooning teenager experiencing the mood swings of, of, of puppy love. We must be careful of that. But if Hosea is meant to teach us anything, it is meant to show us just how wicked sin is, especially from those who profess a commitment to God. That brings us to the third point this morning. What is the relevance of Hosea's illustration to us? I hope as we've looked at least this morning at Hosea and at some of the things that we've talked about, that it's moved us all to treat sin with greater degree of seriousness. 
to see it for what it is, to see it how God sees it, to know how he feels about it. I hope that all of us would recognize how worldliness exhibited by those who profess to know Christ, how that is such a terrible betrayal against the Lord. Think about this, guys. Do you think that was a random decision by God when he described the church as his bride? Do you think God is up there, you know, what can I, you know, what kind of, would be a good illustration or analogy? Bride comes to mind. I get, yeah, we can use that one for the church. Believe me, it was not haphazard. There's intentionality there. I mean, do you think the connection that Paul makes in Ephesians 5 as he talks about marriage and the relationship and the role with husband and wife and how strong he makes that connection with Christ and the church? In fact, describing husbands, that Christ as a husband and the church as his bride. And that marriage really is the analogy to that. Do you think that was an accident? Jesus desires our fidelity and our loyalty. He deserves a pure bride, does he not? And this idea of of spiritual idolatry, you know, it's not just an Old Testament concept. It's not something that was just talked about years and years before Jesus. In fact, listen to what James says in James 4.4, confronting those uh, who were professing to know the Lord. But he says, you adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How did he describe those professing to know the Lord but being caught up in worldly things? He said, you, right, adulteresses, those committing adultery. James describes this worldliness in that way. One pastor put it this way. He said, bluntly put, worldliness is breaking a solemn vow of commitment to Christ and flirting with other gods. And while I'm pretty sure that none of us have this statue of Baal in our front yard or in our backyard and wanting, you know, asking him to help out with our flowers and our lawns, I'm pretty sure none of us are doing that. But do you depend on anything other than God for what you need? Do you give credit to someone or something else that is really due to the Lord and what He has provided? You may not go to an altar for Baal and give sacrifices or participate in the immoral practices that they were doing, but are there any worldly pursuits in your life that you're not repenting of? Any love for the world? John talks about that. Love of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and what? Boastful pride of life. James says, you're participating in any of those things, you're an adulteress. You are betraying, you're being unfaithful, you're, being, uh, you're, being an, in, you're practicing infidelity against the Lord Jesus. Do you see yourself as belonging to Christ alone? Where do your affections lie? How vigilant are you? How wary are you of fleeing from any other lovers? Anything that would steal away those affections. And again, our sin is not, it's not some abstract, a breaking of a law written down ages ago that has no meaning. It is extremely personal. It's very personal to God. It's a breach of faithfulness to a faithful God. And if we entertain any worldly things in our lives, you know what we need to see that as? And I was being hit hard with this even yesterday and this morning because 
You know, I'm doing stuff on my house. And man, I struggled with patience yesterday. And I had some terrible thoughts in my mind as certain things weren't going my way. I think it was hooking up a fixture. But I was convicted. You know, as I was participating in those sins and not being repentant of them, even just in my thoughts, you know what I was doing? I was prettying myself up for a hot date with somebody other than my spouse. You know what I'm getting at? And that's what our sin is. Walking by our, our Lord for another lover. That's why it's a big deal. So beloved, may the message of Hosea remind us, take sin very seriously. Be vigilant to root out any sin in your life as it becomes made known to you. Loathe any sinful desires in your own heart. See sin as, as, as wretched and, and shameful, as a betrayal. Don't just see it as a, I broke some law and so I'm going to get in trouble. See holiness not as some lifestyle for legalists, but as a pursuit for the sake of and honor of our bridegroom, that he would receive an unblemished bride. Let us be all the more attentive, beloved, to run from anything that might woo us away from Christ, to be genuinely sorrowful for our sin, to, to truly understand and remind ourselves how God grieves over our sin, how He feels about it. And let us be all the more grateful for Jesus' love and forgiveness and that He would call us His bride, that He would commit to that kind of a relationship. That is amazing. And you know, while many churches in our land, they continue to move away from talking about sin, and move away from talking about repentance, from practicing church discipline for the purity of Christ's bride. Or as they move away, they downplay the need for holiness. Let us not be that kind of a church. Amen? Christ paid an awful dowry price to have His bride. Is He not worthy of a faithful bride? I want to give opportunity now for you uh, just in the silence to, to talk to the Lord. And if there's any areas in your life where you realize you've been entertaining another lover or you've been considering that or you haven't taken steps to, to flee, that you would use this time as a commitment to be faithful. And so I'll give you a time to talk with the Lord and then um, I'll close this in prayer and then um, we'll prayerfully close with singing that chorus, uh, All I Have is Christ.